Would you please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 7? Luke chapter 7, starting verse 36. Luke chapter 7, uh, beginning in verse 36 all the way to verse 50. This is found on page 1027 in the Pew Bibles. And please keep your Bibles open throughout uh, the message as I will be referring to it multiple on multiple occasions. Um, Luke chapter 7. Hear now the word of the Lord, the word of the living God. One of the Pharisees asked him, that is Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kiss his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus said, Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. Verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Uh, Father in heaven, this is a beautiful picture of Christ and his forgiving grace. I ask, Lord, that as we come now to your word, that you would remove distractions, uh, that you would help us be drawn in to what is true about Jesus Christ. Lord God, I pray that you would work in us through the Holy Spirit, and more than anything, Father, that we would see the glorious grace of Jesus Christ and the gospel, that we would not grow tired of the gospel or how marvelous your grace is. I pray, Lord, that we would have a deeper, fuller, grander view of your grace. And, oh God, would that be the motive of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, My wife and I used to live in downtown Chicago, uh, almost near the Loop, Um, and we would love to go on walks around the neighborhood. Um, Well, actually, if I'm being honest, Shauna likes to go on walks around the neighborhood, and I would go with her. Uh, (laughs) um, But one thing I enjoyed when I would tag along with her is uh, Chicago had a lot of street art or murals. Um, and one of them that was closest to our apartment, very close, one which we walked by probably countless of times, and I've driven by on multiple occasions whenever I pick her up at Moody. <clears throat> it was a simple mural. It was three bold white words, and it said, Love is everywhere. Interesting, very interesting. I think the irony is that these were the same streets um, that we've walked in the aftermath of the 2020 riots. And we would see the broken glass on the sidewalks because of shattered storefronts. There would be cars, police cars set ablaze and now charred on the side of the road. Even just this year alone, There have been 243 homicides in Chicago, and the year has not even ended. Love is everywhere. And I say that not to make a political comment. I say that just to observe that in our culture, in our society, there is this promoting and yearning for love And yet, in our culture, which seems so divided and full of rage, it seems like we can never find it. And in reality, I think the same is very true for Christians, in that we can have great desire. We promote and we yearn for the love of God, but we often see the broken glass of shattered expectations. We often feel like we fail to find it, this love for God. And that's the question I want to ask this morning is, how do we generate love for God? 
How do we cultivate love in us? There's so many ideas out there. Is it just by summoning up sentimental emotions in us? Is it by somehow raising our EQ? Is it by self-willing? I want to know. I think many Christians want to know what cultivates love for God. How does that happen in us? And I think in this passage, we see at least one way. There's probably multiple ways. I think at least one way we see it here. And perhaps lovelessness then in this passage is not because we don't understand love. Perhaps it's because we don't understand sin. That's what we see in this narrative, I think. We see Jesus here reframing a Pharisee's perspective on sin and sinners and how this wrong perspective led to a cold, lifeless love. So Luke then takes us through three different perspectives on sin and sinners. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, the the three different perspectives. The first one is the Pharisee, the second, Jesus, and the third, the sinner herself. So then let's look at this, verses 36 to 39, the perspective of the Pharisee. Verse 36, it says, Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. So picture here, we're not in the synagogue like last week, we're at a dining table. There's a home-cooked meal that's spread. Uh, There's candle lighting that has softened the contours of faces. The volume of dialogue has lowered. This is a very intimate setting, very personal. And then what happens immediately in verse 37? Luke just cuts to the chase. He says, Behold, behold, a woman of the city, a sinner. So a sinner intrudes as if from nowhere. And she's famous for her sin. She is well known for her sin in the city. She embodies the scarlet letter. And if you look at verse 34, just right above this passage, verse a man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So nothing bothered the Pharisees more Nothing disturbed them more than Jesus' association with sinners. And now here in this very intimate location, here of all places, a, a contagion of the city, a walking impurity, she intrudes uninvited into this cordial dinner. Like, who invited you? Then starting in verse 37, what does Luke do? He doesn't turn the camera away. He takes the camera and he zooms in. And we don't even hear a single word from this woman, the entire narrative. She's like a silent testimony. But what does Luke focus on? He focuses on this, he focuses the spotlight really on her actions. On her actions. <clears throat> so you can almost imagine. You know, the sound of clattering dishes and scraping silverware and 
casual chatter. It begins to fade in the background. And Luke is saying, look at her. Look at this sinful woman. She has an alabaster flask of ointment in hand, so she came with the intention of anointing the Messiah. Then verse 38, she stands behind Jesus with no intention of interrupting, and then as if overcome by emotion, she begins weeping. And then the tears then fall on his feet, and there's no towel in reach, so she bends down, grabs her hair, and she begins wiping his feet. And since she's so close to his feet, she is again overcome by emotion, and she feels compelled to kiss his feet. And now she has the ointment in hand, and what she, when she intended to, to anoint his head, she now uses his ointment to pour it on his feet. Here is a humble woman. This is an act of extravagant Messy, humble love. But we see this from the Pharisees' perspective in verse 39. It says, The Pharisee saw this, and then he begins to make a deduction in his mind. You can see him clearing his throat and shifting the weight in his chair. And then Luke lets us into his inner monologue, his secret thoughts. Look at what he says. Look at his perspective. He says to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So the Pharisee concludes that Jesus Christ is not a prophet. And my question is, how? How could, how could you make this deduction based off this one single interaction. What is your logic? How does he do that? It's very strange. And what we have to understand, from the viewpoint of the Pharisee, God is holy, and therefore he avoids sinners. So that means holy people, holy men, must avoid sinners. So the massive assumption of the Pharisee is that a holy man cannot have contact with sinners. It can't happen. Look at verse 39. What, what exactly bothers the Pharisee? What did she do that was so bothersome? Was it the fact that she tried to anoint his feet? Was it the fact that she was weeping? What does it say? It says she was doing what? She was touching him. How could Jesus allow this sinful woman to touch him? How could this holy rabbi allow this close contact with such a sinful person? But the Pharisee is actually kind of charitable here because rather than assume Jesus is unholy, the Pharisee assumes rather that Jesus Christ is just humanly ignorant He's just unaware. Um, if, look, he says, if he would have known, if he would have known who and what sort of woman she is, undoubtedly this holy rabbi would not have allowed her to touch him. So based off that, he says, okay, Jesus must then be humanly ignorant. Therefore, he can't be a prophet. 
But it may be, it never occurred to the Pharisee. It never occurred to the Pharisee that maybe Jesus Christ knew exactly what kind of person she was. That maybe Jesus was deliberately not avoiding her. It never occurred to the Pharisee that maybe Jesus is holy, not because he avoids sinners. Maybe Jesus is holy because he remains holy when he comes in contact with sinners. Maybe Jesus came specifically to identify with sinners. That Jesus would so identify in the closest contact with sinners, what happens at the cross? He who knew no sin becomes what? He becomes sin for us. This is at the center of Christianity. Donald McLeod, he, was a great, he is a great Scottish theologian. He's, I think he's still alive. Um, he said, the paradox should not escape us. He was sinless. He was the Son of God. But there, on Golgotha, he was a sinner. The gospel reveals sinners are the very ones Jesus Christ came to befriend and save. And really, this is a reoccurring theme in Luke. Luke chapter 5, verse 28. This is one of his mission statements. Early on in his ministerial career, Jesus Christ said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke chapter 15, verse 2. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners. Luke chapter 19, verse 7. They all grumbled, saying, He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. So while the Pharisee sees God avoiding sinners, Jesus Christ reveals that God seeks sinners. This is why Samuel Rutherford, a Puritan, said, Seek a broken heart for sin, for without it, there is no meeting with Christ. There is no meeting with Christ. And here is this Pharisee who will not lower himself to that. He refuses to have a broken heart for sin. Notice, notice the implication of his thought process, right? He says in verse 39, she's that sort of woman. What does that mean? What's the implication of saying that? She's that sort of woman. The implication means, I'm not that sort of man. I don't fall under that category. Well, Mr. Pharisee, what category do you fall under? Well, the Pharisee, the mindset of the Pharisee, he must shrink and compartmentalize sin. He must make it merely something external. Something manageable, domesticated, pocket-sized. Really, if he just, you know, rakes his leaves and pays his taxes, go to church every now and then, don't say the the name of the Lord in vain. Say a couple prayers here and there. Even read his Bible. Well, then, you know, I'm not a sinner. I'm not in that category. 
He's no longer within the category of sinner. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, if you ever heard of him, he was a great preacher in London. He said, You will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner because there is a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. We are, we are all on very good terms with ourselves. We can always put up a good case for ourselves. The problem is by placing ourselves in a separate class outside this category of sinners, we are placing ourselves outside the very group Christ came to befriend and save. Which is why C.S. Lewis would say, a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church is far nearer to hell than a prostitute. Really, here, the irony is the Pharisee is the one intruding, isn't he? The sinful woman isn't the outsider in this case. The Pharisee is. Well, then, how does, how does Jesus see sinners? So look at verses 44, or 40 to 47. Luke said, Jesus answered. Now that's, that's interesting because the Pharisee never said any of this out loud, meaning it's as if Jesus overheard his inner monologue. Jesus heard his inner thoughts. Jesus answered. So if the Pharisee assumed Jesus was humanly ignorant, Jesus immediately starts contradicting that theory. The notice in verse 40. So up to this point, Luke has only been addressing the Pharisee by his group identity, right? As the Pharisee. But here, Jesus becomes intensely personal. It's as if he's suspending his identity in the air. It's as if he's addressing him not simply by his group association. He's, just, he's addressing him by his name. As the individual he says, Simon. This is the first time we hear his name in the entire narrative coming from Jesus' lips. He says, Simon. Now look at verses 44 or 40 to 42. This mini parable that Jesus gives. He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. So this is, in comparison to other parables, this is very bare-boned. It's very simplistic. It's impressionistic. There's not much fluff to it. Really, the only detail which is significant is the difference in the amount owed. So notice that one debt, 500 is exactly 10 times more than the other debt, which is 50. So the point is not the fact 
that the money lender cancels the debt. The point is the difference in the amount owed. It's, it's a point of comparison. And it frames what Jesus says next. So verse 42 to 43, Jesus asked, Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Well, okay, Jesus, that was an easy, that was an easy question. I mean, I went to Galilee Theological Seminary. You could do better than that. What's your point? Um, Verse 44, look at it. Then Jesus, turning toward the woman. So the point starts to become clear. Jesus turned toward the woman, but he's still speaking to Simon. That's really strange. Jesus turned toward the woman, speaking to Simon. He creates this conversational triangle. And now this woman becomes an object lesson. If you look, if you look at verse 39... Remember, Simon was disturbed by what he saw, right? He saw this, and he was bothered. Now look at verse 44. Jesus says, do you see this woman? He's saying, in light of what I just told you, and your very own admission, look again. See this woman from my perspective. So the parable was meant to reframe the, the, the Pharisee's perspective of this woman, so then Jesus retells the same, what just happened? Jesus just retells it, this anointing, but now he does it in light of the parable, right? He compares her acts, her acts of love with Simon's in verses 44 to 46. So just very quickly, look at it. It says, where Simon offered no water or towel, the woman offered her own tears, her own hair. Where Simon offered no kiss, She has not ceased to kiss his feet. Where Simon gave no oil, she gives him ointment. And ointment is something more expensive than oil. So Jesus is saying, in comparison to this woman's love, you, Simon, you are cold, metallic, and aloof. And the reason, the reason her actions are so extravagant compared to yours is precisely because she saw herself as a $500 sinner. That's the reason. But Simon, your actions, your actions are, have no ardor, no tears, no love. Why? Because Simon saw his sin as pennies compared to her. Now, we have to be very careful. We have to clarify here because the issue is his small perception of his sin. The issue was not whether he quantitatively or actually sinned more than her. It's not like he'd be better off if he killed a man and then ran off with the secretary. That's not Jesus' point. The question was not, are your sins great? But do you greatly see your sin? For Simon, the mammoth of sin was a marble. And because of that, 
He saw forgiveness as this tiny little thing. Because he saw forgiveness as something tiny and he couldn't, he couldn't cherish that, his love for Christ was cold. And really, this is explained in verse 47, isn't it? He says, look at verse 47. I think the most important passage, or most important verse of this entire passage, he says, therefore, so in light of this comparison, I tell you, her sins, which are many, so Jesus isn't excusing her for her sin. He says, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. So here, this is a very important question. It's a big grammatical question here that we have to answer. And it's, what does that word for mean? What does that mean? It could mean two things. It could mean her sins are forgiven because she loved much. So that means her acts of love causes this forgiveness of sins. Or it could mean her forgiveness of sins causes love. So love is the result of the forgiveness of sins. And I think the answer is pretty darn clear. Um, she loves because her sins have, for, have been forgiven. And why is that? Why do I see it that way? Because the money lender does not cancel their debt because they love him, right? The money lender cancels their debt, therefore they love him. That's the only way to read this. So in the same way, Jesus doesn't forgive her because she loves him. Her love to him shows or evidences or proves that she has believed her sins have been forgiven. It's like saying there is fire for there is smoke. The smoke doesn't cause the fire. The smoke proves or shows or is a result of the fire. And he says the same thing negatively. He says in verse 47, he who is forgiven little loves little. So it's pretty clear. And this is so important. Because from Jesus' perspective then, a deep sense of sinfulness is good. Why? Because... There is a direct proportional relationship, direct proportional relationship between the sense of sins forgiven and the love produced. So what do I mean by direct proportional? It means two things. First, there is a cause and effect relationship, right? Our love to God and neighbor is never the cause of forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins is always the cause of love. And the relationship can never be reversed. If it was reversed, we have an anti-gospel. You can't create a fire by gathering up smoke into a bottle. You can't bring the moon closer to the earth by somehow raising the ocean tides. And you can't have your sins forgiven by loving the gospel precedes ethics. What God accomplishes for us precedes what God accomplishes in us. 
So this is why I chose to read the Heidelberg Catechism question and answer to this morning, because we see the same sequence, the same sequence in the Christian life. It goes sin, salvation, then service, or guilt, then grace, then gratitude. There's a cause and effect relationship which which can never be reversed. And the chain reaction begins with sin. So it has a cause and effect relationship. Second, there is a proportional relationship. So what do I mean by that? <clears throat> well, there's, we all know that Ukraine is with, in war with Russia, and it's created this uh, great existential threat in America. It's not nuclear war or war, World War III. It's something that's far more problematic, far more widespread, and concerning. It's called rising gas prices. <laughs> um, so, you know, Sean and I, we lived in, we live in North Park, Chicago. So I would try never to get gasoline in Chicago. I would always try to get it here in Gary, Indiana. Now, why do I do that? Well, it's because there is a direct proportional relationship between the amount of gas I put in and the amount of money I must pay. So there's, a, there's an increase in one quantity causes a corresponding increase in the other quantity, right? The, the more gas I put in, the more money I must pay. The more fire there is, the more smoke there will be. The closer the moon, the higher the tides. The more, the, the deeper we, we perceive our sins, the greater our sins perceived, the greater forgiveness perceived, the greater forgiveness perceived, the greater love will result. Or to say it negatively again, he who is forgiven little, therefore, loves little. There is a direct proportional relationship. And this is, this is exactly what this Puritan prayer is about. It's called Valley of Vision. And it says, The way down is the way up. The daytime stars can be seen from deepest wells. And the deeper the wells, the brighter thy star shines. The lower we descend into the deep wells of sinfulness, the brighter the stars of God's forgiveness. Um, last week, uh, two people from the church, this church told me this, and I think it, it's relevant. And two different people, they said, God doesn't show us all our sins at once. He doesn't do it all at once. And I think a corollary of that is that growth or pro- progress in the Christian life includes God pulling back the curtains of our heart and revealing more and more of the labyrinth, the monster of sin that's in our hearts. God wants to reveal to us something called, what Gregory the Great called, the horror of the self. And why? Why does he do that? Why does God allow us to to sense the unbearable weight of failure. 
Why does God allow us to feel the the self-devastation of sin? Here's one answer from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5, paragraph 5. It says, The most wise, righteous, and gracious God does oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations. And he tells, and it tells us why. To discover in them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts. And then it keeps going. Why does it do that? That they may be humbled. And to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon God himself. So I think, interestingly, one way God cultivates love in us is by crushing us. Is by giving you a deeper sense of your sinfulness that you may be humbled. That you may be kept from saying, I have been forgiven little. So that the daytime stars of God's forgiving grace may shine even brighter to you. That you will glory all the more in the forgiving grace of Jesus Christ. From Christ's perspective, then, the sinner has an opportunity the Pharisee may never have. The sinner has the opportunity to know and embrace the forgiving grace of Jesus Christ. So then, how does the sinner see all this? Look at verse, verses 48 to 49. I call it the perspective of the sinner. So look at verse 48. So far, um, no one has addressed the woman directly. And now finally here, Jesus already turned toward the woman. He speaks to her. So now we see from the perspective of the sinful woman. And what does she see? She sees... She sees the face of the Messiah. And she hears in a gentle and authoritative voice. She hears, Your sins are forgiven. Now, does that mean her love achieved this forgiveness? I think clearly not. Notice that in verse 49, Luke reveals that there was a group present all along. He says, there were those who were at table with him. So Luke doesn't tell us there were others around until now. Why does he do that? The point is, Jesus is making a public pronouncement of forgiveness for for this woman. Jesus is reassuring her, reassuring her, encouraging her in the face of public rejection. That's why it's placed there. So then the woman, she hears a crowd in verse 49, and they ask, who is this? Who, even forgive, who is this who even forgives sins? 
But look what Jesus does. He doesn't even answer the question. He doesn't even acknowledge them. Jesus, it's as if he ignores them, and his eyes are glued to this woman. And in verse 50, he tells her, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So the perspective of a sinner needs to be one of faith. Of faith. If the danger of the Pharisee then is the failure to see his sinfulness, the danger of the sinner is the lack of faith to receive Christ's forgiveness. If your sin was all that you saw, if that's all you saw, then there will only be despair and self-castigation and morbid introspection. There will be only what Soren Kierkegaard called the sickness unto death. You will hear Satan say, look, that's all you are, a sinner. That's all you are. You can't go to Christ. You can't go to him. Christ won't allow you to touch him. Who invited you? But then this passage, Jesus, it's as if Jesus looks you in the face and all these voices in the background and he looks at you and you feel like a hypocrite, a fraud, an imposter at church. They don't know what I do at home. You feel like a failure, never progressing as much as you want to in the faith. You feel the sting of habitual sin. You feel brokenhearted. You feel like you're not brokenhearted enough. You feel like you, I can't, I've come to Christ a thousand times. How much longer will he put up with me? And here's Jesus. And he looks you in the face. And in a gentle and authoritative voice, he tells you, your sins are forgiven. Yes, I tell you, your sins, which are many, are forgiven. And how do we respond? What do we do? We respond this way. We simply believe him. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So then if he who is forgiven little loves little, you who are forgiven much, go and love much. Well then let's pray. Our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, I pray, Lord, that we will never become desensitized to the forgiveness of sins and the glory thereof. I pray, Lord, that we would go further in and further up in this glorious reality. The gospel is a power to save. I ask, O oh God, that we would be enthralled once more with the gospel, that we wouldn't just be those who proclaim it, but those who are 
ecstatic over it. Those who have encountered it again and again. Those who know the reality of the forgiveness of sins more and more. Those who see the face of Jesus Christ and know him so well. Who have communed with him day after day and know his forgiving love. I pray, O Lord, that we would be a people here who exalt and glorify the grace of Jesus Christ more than anything else. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.